Welcome back to the Chelsea Overseas Podcast. Today, a bit of an emergency emergency episode, but we'll be recapping the fiery Chelsea vs Tottenham London Derby. I'm give a few thoughts on that as well as the refereeing, give a few transfer updates. I'm going to laugh at Man United, and we're going to preview our match against Leeds United. So first, the London Derby, Chelsea, Spurs. Despite the draw, I think Chelsea played pretty well. What do you think, Adam? Well, yeah, we completely deserved the three points. For for 60 minutes, we dominated the game. And and then Spurs changed the shape and had a good 7 to 10 minutes or so. And then after that, Chelsea Chelsea were back and, and dominated the rest of the game and got their second goal, and it should have been enough. And I think really when, when you really dissect the performance, it was pretty much everything that we we hoped it to be and you talk about stopping those transitions before they happen stopping Kane and Son and you know we did that by having possession in good areas and we saw Spurs try to press from the front at times and win the ball higher to get Son and Kane involved I felt uh, the back three of Chelsea were good in possession Kalidou Koulibaly in particular was very good playing out from the back and he was able to find Mason Mount who dropped into a lot of good pockets in midfield to help get Chelsea up the pitch. And Chelsea had a lot of kind of sustained pressure and moments in the attacking third and possession in the attacking third. And you really felt Jorginho and Conte really controlled and dictated the game on and off the ball. And by having that pressure in the attacking third, we really were able to win the ball back higher with our counter-pressing. And you really saw Mason Mount in particular, but also Sterling and Kai Havertz. The front three were very, very good. And you see the benefit with having um, a very fluid front three rather than last year with, with Lukaku. With Sterling or Havertz in that false nine role, you really get that that counter-pressing from the whole of the front three. And all three of them were, were very good. And Jorginho and Conte really bossed that midfield area out of possession and made it very difficult for Hoybier and Benteker. And Son and Kane had a really difficult time for most of the game. And and you also, I think, have to credit Reese James for outright center back doing a really good job with Son, even playing on a yellow card in the second half. And and Loftus-Cheek was good too. There was a moment where I remember on the Sessegnon chance, Son, who was drifting inside, James would go tight to him and follow him. Uh, and so when Sessegnon made that run in behind, that's Loftus-Cheek's job to to go with him and deal with it. You can't expect Thiago Silva to come all the way from the middle of the back three on the cover. So after the first time that Sessegnon got in behind, Loftus-Cheek figured it out. You know, that, that balance with Loftus-Cheek and Reese James worked. And you really did think just Chelsea executed their plan of stopping those transitions before they have before they happen and making sure that Son and Kane did not have a lot of opportunities to get forward. And I think you also have to credit in the attacking third the chances that that Chelsea did create uh, again winning the ball in good areas higher up the pitch. Uh, but the front three you really felt that there was a bit more chemistry there. There was a bit more interplay and combinations between Sterling, Mount, and Havertz. And, you know, all three of them had pretty good games. And there were 
there was more movement in behind the line, behind the defense of Spurs and and chances created. And and then the wing backs were able to get into a bit of space too, like you see on the second goal with Reese James. So really on and off the ball, Chelsea were the better team for most of the match. Uh we were we were hard done by and you know we'll get to that we'll get to that in a second. I'd give Chelsea an eight and a half out of ten that day. I mean they looked really sharp. I mean for a team that has so much uncertainty and like un, like a little bit of unrest and unsettlement, they performed really well. Now, we're going to get into some of the refereeing decisions because there's a bit of a history with Anthony Taylor and Chelsea. But what, what are your thoughts? I just want to know because I think that both goals, or at least, at, at least one of them should have been disallowed. The first one's a little bit more debatable. Yeah, well, for me... I think I like I feel extremely hard done by with this game just in general but uh the refereeing you know I do agree the first goal is debatable I, there is a touch on the ball on the challenge on Kai Havertz from Benteker uh before he makes contact with Kai Havertz and I think Anthony Taylor you saw him point at it and I I do think it's more of a 50-50 and nowadays it it, it isn't really about you know, making contact with the ball, it's about how much of the body you get in that process. So it very easily could have been a foul. But there is a touch on the ball before he does make contact with Kai Havertz. So I can maybe understand that one. The the offside where Richarlison's in an offside position and potentially obstructing Mendy's view on Hoybier's shot, I do think that does obstruct Mendy's view and I lean toward more towards that being offside. Uh, it is debatable because Mendy doesn't really complain after the fact. But I I think you do see him try to peek around kind of Richarlison. He's kind of right in his line of vision. And it wasn't that like hard of a shot from Hoybier. And I think if Richarlison isn't there, it gives Mendy a better chance of saving it. So I, I, I do think Chelsea were a bit hard done by with that one. And then the second goal for me, this you know, the first one's a bit debatable, but the second one is not. I mean, this is very simple. You, you can't pull people's hair. Uh, I never thought I'd have to say that on this podcast, but like, what is the debate here? You can't pull people's hair. It's violent conduct. So, yeah, I, I, I completely didn't understand the second goal. And I, I, and what what baffles me the most is that they go to VAR. It's not like they just missed it. They go to VAR and look at it, and then deem it to be all right. I don't get it. And Sky Sports put on their post on on Instagram that Christian Romero will not face retrospective action for pulling the hair of Chelsea's Mark Kukurea on Super Sunday, as pulling a player's hair is not considered an offense in football's rules. So if Salah's on a counterattack now, we could just pull his hair. Is that is that what we're what we're getting to? So I, I don't get it. I, I think it's a foul, and the second goal shouldn't have happened. So yeah, we were hard done by. If it was Liverpool, I think they would have called the red card immediately. But this Chelsea and Anthony Taylor, they 
kept it going. So now, just a little bit more of a banter side of this thing. There's a little bit of beef between Tuchel and Conte. You know, you can see after the match, after the final, we'll say they both got red cards. They were kind of fighting with each other, kind of arguing. But is this better than Wenger and Jose? Yeah, well, it, it was definitely really funny. Um, Tuchel and Conte going at it. And I'm not sure if it's better than Wenger and Mourinho. Um, I think they had years of beef. Um, but I, I do think there is respect between Tuchel and Conte. I think everything got very heated. Everything got heated on Sunday. And I think even Tuchel was honestly more mad at the ref than he was at, at Conte. Uh, but it, it, it was still very, very funny. Um, the handshake at the end is is hilarious, where t- where Tuchel says to Conte, "Look me in the eyes." Um, that that's a funny, that's very very, a very funny moment. And even Conte after posting on his story when Tuchel ran by his technical area on Reese's goal, um, when he says, "You know, I, it would be funny. It would have been funny if I tripped you when you were on your way uh, over." So, yeah, de- definitely a London derby to remember in terms of uh, a little bit of manager beef and even the, the benches kind of cleared out too uh, in that second half. So a very fiery London derby. And, uh, you know, in the end, we were hard done by and it's too bad we didn't get those three points. All right. Now, before we go into the transfers there's something I want to talk about because, you know, Spurs during the whole preseason, they've really been settled. They've been having a great transfer window and not to say that Chelsea have had a bad one, but there's still a little bit of uncertainty, right? There's a couple of players you still want to sign and all of that. But despite Spurs having the better preseason and feeling a lot more like a comfortable club, how impressed were you that Chelsea kind of dominated the game? Yeah, well, th- that's, I guess, the good part of all of this, right? Like, I think in the end... The refereeing decisions were the biggest reason why we didn't win this this match. We really dominated large parts of the match, and I actually didn't really expect that, right? We talked about it last week, and I thought this would be a, a difficult game. And, you know, it turned out to actually be fairly straightforward for Chelsea and dominant. So I, I was very impressed, and, and that's the good part uh, of all this. And... We knew these would be a tricky first two games of the season, going to Goodison and then, you know, against a, a Tottenham squad that have improved. But to come away with four points, it's it's not bad. I'll take it. As much as we deserved this win, um, you know, we were a bit, <laughs> a little bit fortunate to to not drop points at Goodison. So, you know, four points, I'm okay with it. And this was obviously a really strong performance. No one, no one really played played bad i felt everyone on on the pitch played well for chelsea hopefully chelsea can continue this dominance into the season now into a bit of transfer news because there's a bit of updates on some chelsea targets first up um inter milan wonder kid cesare cassade cassade something like that but do you think that he can be another wonder kid and maybe blossom and further his career at chelsea yeah well I think, again, I remember saying this about Chukwameka, but I really feel Tuchel's looking at 
the three big midfielders at this club, Jorginho, Kante, Kovacic, two of which contracts are expiring in 2023. And he's maybe thinking about the future and kind of life after those those three, especially Jorginho and Kante as they enter their 30s. So, you know, it's it's good planning for the future. Uh, it, it's It's a midfield player that, at 19 years old, has big potential. And like Chukwameka, can hopefully break through in the squad in, in the coming years. So, yeah, I, I do think that this is really looking at the age of our midfielders and the contracts and just planning a bit in advance, which is good. Yeah, I mean, when you look at Chelsea's midfield, uh, as as dominant and as good as they are, you, you kind of get concerned about how old they are. Of course, you have players like Conor Gallagher that can come off and really just make a big impact, but you also have to start looking at the future just a little bit. Now, is there any updates on Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and Fofana? Because they're both prime targets for Chelsea. Yeah, so uh, in terms of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, you know, we talked about, Tuchel actually mentioned in his press conference the sort of relationship he has with him. Obviously, he has a very strong relationship with him. Uh, the the thing about this deal is Barca wants a big fee, uh, 30 million euros. Obviously, for a player who's a bit older, uh, you're you're not going to want to pay as much, especially with the the contract and the wages probably being, you know, a bit larger. Uh, I think Chelsea were are going to want to play less, you know, good amount less than 30 million. So. We'll see what Todd Bowley can do there. I think I think Chelsea will push for it. Just there will be a lot of negotiations because I think Chelsea will want to bring down that fee. As for Fofana, this one's really interesting because Leicester continue to say no sale, no sale. Uh, but Wesley Fofana wants to move and I, it actually seems like he's getting a bit unsettled because he thinks that Leicester are pricing him out a bit. But this next bid from Chelsea, watch this one closely because I think this would be the third bid and it could be a world record offer for a defender. And if it is that, and you're looking at maybe 85 million pounds, maybe more with add-ons and stuff, it, it could get quite humongous. And in that case, I think there is... There's a feeling that although, you know, Brendan Rodgers and Leicester saying he's not for sale, if Chelsea do give that world record fee, they will accept. So watch this one closely because I think, I think Chelsea are really keen on the player and adding another defender and could go very big and make a statement. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it on this podcast multiple times on how Chelsea are looking for another or defender, primarily a, a center back. And we'll also talked about maybe getting a backup replacement striker for Timo Werner. So someone like Obama fits that bill perfectly. But it's it's just a matter of transfer fees between both Barcelona and Leicester, respectively. Now, let's take a moment to kind of steer away from Chelsea and just kind of breathe a sigh of relief and kind of just, kind of just laugh a little bit at Manchester United, right? What the heck happened to this team? Because... Opening match, losing 2-1 to Brighton at Old Trafford, and then getting 
clapped by Brentford 4-0, who now sit third of the table, by the way. What happened to this United squad? I mean, they haven't scored a single goal from their own players this like in these past two games and have a goal difference of, what is it, minus four or something like that? Like, what's going on with this team? Yeah, well, it was obviously horrible against Brentford. It, it was... It was... Awful, and you see, you heard Gary Neville say it's like watching uh, under nine boys, and you know, you know, I think there's such an easy team to beat right now. Everyone outworks them, and just confidence-wise, you you put a bit of pressure on them. You try to squeeze them higher up the pitch, and they fall right into your traps, and. I think there's 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 bigger issues than all this. There's protests that uh, that I believe are going to be done next week against Liverpool, and there's there's problems with the ownership. Uh, if you've heard, basically the Glazers don't really put money into the club. They kind of just use the the money that the club the revenue it generates. Uh, they're not really putting any of their own money into the club. And that's something that United fans have, have been upset with and, and rightly so. Um, so there, you know, there are bigger issues and, and there's, there's a part of me that really feels for Ten Hag cause he's thrown into this with, with ownership that hasn't really supported their managers in the best possible way supported the club in general in the best possible way. And you do have a dressing room of, of players that have been really, really difficult for every manager since Sir Alex Ferguson to work with. You know, as much as I think there there are a few things that he could have even done differently in this match, Ten Hag, because just one thing I think, you know, he wants to play off and back and have a lot of possession and whatever, but teams are, are going to try to put pressure on you at the moment and there should just be times where you just try to go longer. And that goal that they concede where the ball is played into Erickson and it's turned over in their own half, you're playing right into Brentford's hands. So so I think there are things that saying hey can adapt to, but it's early days for him and he's just feel like he's being thrown into a big fire and I just honestly I, I kind of feel bad for the guy at times yeah I mean as a City fan myself couldn't be happier City top of the table United bottom of the table but as a neutral you can't you can't really do anything but feel for this club and feel for Ten Hag and for the players really I mean it's it's an absolute nightmare you know you joined this absolutely historic and some prestigious club but it's, it's not looking good for them. I mean, they're trying to get the sudden switch from Ten Hag and it, it's not working out for them. And you're kind of getting like a deja vu of Arsenal last season, but much, much worse because there's no, it doesn't seem like there's light at the end of the tunnel right now. Now, let's steer our attention back to Chelsea as they'll take on Leeds. Four points. I mean, thoughts on Leeds in the early part of the season, if you have any. And what are some of the threats that Chelsea have to be aware of? Yeah, well, strong start to the year for Leeds. You know, I've seen people put them in the relegation zone. And um, they did lose some 
you know, very key player in Calvin Phillips, another one in Rafinha. Uh, so it's it's not easy for Jesse Marsh and, and Leeds United this year. But they've had a very good start. And I, I do think that Tyler Adams was, was a good signing. Uh, and I think he'll, he'll be all right in there. And Brendan Aronson is, is a very good player too. And we'll add a bit of creativity in that attack and, and fill a little bit of the role uh, of Rafinha. And this year, they have Patrick Bamford back and fully fit. So if he were to stay fit, obviously that's huge for them. So uh, it, it's good for Leeds. This start has been good. I think in terms of the threats we have to be aware of, you know, all fingers point to to Patrick Bamford and the runs he'll make off the ball in behind. And especially with us, with a little bit of an older back line, it's going to be very key that we limit the service into him. And also, too, the, Rodrigo's had a very good start to the year. And he's played as a number 10 in, the, in that 4-2-3-1. The Leeds have played in both matches, and he has three goals. Got a brace against uh, Southampton over the weekend, so he's also someone to be aware uh, to be wary of because he'll look to spring Bamford in behind and Aronson and and Rodrigo are those creative players who in midfield you you definitely need to be very very aware of. You know, myself, I didn't watch much Leeds this season, but I trust your word. <laughs> I have heard that Rodrigo is playing that number 10. He has three goals to his name as far as I'm concerned, so got to watch out for that. Now, we've talked about Leeds now. Let's talk about Chelsea, and how can Chelsea really break Leeds United down and come out with three points here? Yeah, so I think in terms of Chelsea breaking Leeds down, they've gone to that 4-2-3-1 to start the year. I wonder if Jesse March will will go to a five because he's played with it before. He played with it a good amount towards the end of last year uh, to help deal with Chelsea's wing backs and the, and some of the width in their attack. But if let's assume they go with a four two three one because that's what they've started with uh, so far this year. And I think I think the wing backs could be very key against against that system uh, with kind of those two number 10s uh, that Chelsea have in that front three, hopefully they can drag kind of those fullbacks inside and and keep that back four of Leeds narrow, which hopefully then lets those wing backs really get forward for Chelsea. And, and then for Leeds, it's really key that Aronson, Harrison, they do their job defensively and, and they help out their fullbacks because if the fullback goes inside then someone has to deal with, with those wingbacks. And it's very important that Harrison and Aronson do if Leeds were to start in that system. So I think it's important that Chelsea put Leeds in that situation and, and force uh, those those fullbacks to close gaps inside and not open up gaps in behind the defense for those two number 10s to run into. So then that gives space for Chelsea's wingbacks to work with. That that'll be that'll be very key. And another another key, I think, you know, we're releasing this episode on Tuesday, so we won't have news about Mateo Kovacic this weekend. But N'Golo Kante, I doubt will play after the injury. Mateo Kovacic obviously 
will have a key role if he were to start, or in that case, I'm pretty sure if it's not Kovacic, it's Connor Gallagher. But whoever's alongside Jorginho, um, I hope is able to really provide a creative spark behind that front three of Chelsea and kind of break the midfield line of leads. Yeah, I mean, these injuries, uh, who starts and who doesn't is going to be really crucial for both sides. But let's let's take a look and predict our starting 11s, our favorite part of the podcast. What is your prediction for the starting 11 against Leeds? Yes, well, before I say this, I'm two for two, by the way, so far this year. And last week, my call was right about Loftus-Cheek at right wing back and Reese James at right center back. And it worked. It did work because if it didn't work, as much as the blame would have been on Tuchel, you all could blame me too. <laughs> it was a legendary call, and we were talking about we were talking about it afterwards when the lineups came out. We were like, "Oh crap, this guy <laughs> predicted that perfectly." But do you think Chelsea will go to a back three or a back four against Leeds here? Well, I think I think we'll stick with the back three. I think we'll stick with the back three in this one. And um, there were a few debates in this eleven, but Mendy and Goal, who, by the way. Um, you know, pulled off a few important saves against Spurs, and I think you have to give him credit for that. Uh, can't really do much about the second goal. The first goal, if I think his view was a bit ob- obstructed, if it was, then you can't blame him too much for that one. Uh, but he did pull off some important saves. Uh, Kulabali on the left of the back three, Thiago Silva in the middle. I debated on the right of the back three, but I went with Aspi. Just because I think Harrison's obviously a very different proposition on the left-hand side for Leeds uh, than Son was. And I think Aspie, Aspie can take care of, of, of that. And I really want Reese James at right wing back, so I have Aspie at right center back. My midfield, Jorginho, and then Adel Kante plays. So Kovacic, if Kovacic can't play Gallagher... And then my wing backs, Reese James at right wing back, and I have Kukurea still at left wing back. I thought he was very good against Spurs, and I was gonna put Chilwell in, but I, I after kind of what Kukurea has given Chelsea and his sub appearance against Everton and the match, the start against Tottenham, I can't really leave him out. And the front three doesn't change. They started to find some more chemistry against Spurs. They were very very good. Uh, and I don't want to change them. So that's my 11. Kind of kind of funny how our starting 11s are pretty much identical. I mean, this is kind of like the quote-unquote default or kind of standard lineup from Chelsea, if you will, with the back three, with the two wing backs that could stretch up, up the pitch. I have Mendy in goal. I have Koulibaly on the left. I have Thiago Silva on the right. And I do have Aspi on the right as well. I mean, I just just because I think that Although I can't say Leeds are like a quote-unquote weaker opponent, but I feel like Aspi could handle that that one better than he can handle Son. And as we mentioned before, Reese James on that right wing back is very valuable. And I want to keep him there. And I went with Jorginho and Gallagher just because I want Connor Gallagher to start a Chelsea game. I think he was brilliant for Crystal Palace last season, and I think he could carry it on to Chelsea. He just needs the he just needs the opportunity. He just needs the playing time, and I think he'll be fine. And then I also went with Kukurea on the left wing back. I mean, can't really 
count out his performances and the the amount of like good solid performances always at least a seven out of ten so far for me in the first two games of the season and i do think chill might come on in like 70 75 minutes just to really see out the game if chelsea are ahead and then with the front three i want with the same i mean i just i just think that they need to they they looked good against spurs but i just think they need a bit more time to really gel together as a front three and then they could be the most dangerous front three in the league maybe better than cities we'll, we'll see I, I wish. <laughs> yeah, well, one more thing I want to mention. We're going to close off with this. The ball from Reese James to Kai Havertz on the, the chance that Havertz missed. Good Lord. <laughs> that was ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Reese James is the best right back in the world. You can debate it. You can debate it. If there's anyone out there that wants to debate it, Liverpool fans, I'm looking at you guys with Trent Alexander-Arnold. But even as a City fan, I mean, I have to agree. Reese James is just so good at his job. And the fact that he's a wingback, or like, you can say like a right back, but like, I think he is so good and so important to Chelsea's attack. And it even showed last season. It's starting to show again this season, even though... You know, Chelsea have a better or like more solidified front three. And it, it just shows how valuable he is to this Chelsea squad. And hopefully, he can make another big impact in this Leeds game. So, we'll be back next week to recap the match against Leeds United. And we'll be previewing our match against Leicester. We'll be updating you guys with transfer news as well, if there is any. And Adam, to you. All right. Thank you all for listening. And go Chelsea.